Hello again, Ars Technica listeners. This is the third installment of a four-part conversation about existential risks with serial entrepreneur Naval Ravikant. If you haven't heard the first two parts, which we posted on Monday and Tuesday, I encourage you to first check them out. I'd also encourage you to watch the TED Talk, which I was invited to give as a result of posting this very interview with Naval to my podcast listeners back in March. Huge thanks to TED and Naval for that. As mentioned before, it went up on the front page of TED.com yesterday. Also on ours today, George Church has posted a piece in which he talks about the vital importance of biological surveillance in this dawning era of synthetic and edited life, which already features engineered and intentionally evolved pathogens. He points out that, quote, three of the most low-cost and highly effective global public health strategies are hygiene, quarantine, and vaccines, all of which rely on constant, keen observation. George is one of the world's most influential bioengineers, and his Harvard lab has spawned a dizzying range of innovations, techniques, and startups, and he's been advocating for surveillance systems in his own field of synthetic biology since 2004. As his article today points out, few people would call for a comprehensive global ban on cars, yet almost everyone supports certain levels of car and driver surveillance via radar guns, blood alcohol tests, etc. Responsible use and careful surveillance will be even more important in the high-stakes world of SynBio. I recommend you read George's piece in ours. I'll add that I was lucky enough to interview George for my podcast that was episode 24 a bit more than a year ago. You can find that on my website at after-on.com. Or just search After On in your favorite podcasting app. And I will add, we posted that episode to Ars Technica in, I can't remember if it was three or four installments, but that was in the past year or so. Speaking of SynBio, in today's installment of my conversation with Naval, he and I dive deep into the profound dangers that malicious uses of SynBio could present. We'll pick up with the last minute or so of yesterday's conversation to give you some context. And here we go. <music> At any given time on the planet, there's a few people. One is too many. One is too many. If you gave them a button that would end this planet, they would press the button. If there were such a button, and one day everybody woke up and they had access to that button. The world would have to be a very civilized place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you would basically have to make everybody really happy. But that's what we're talking about. On a long enough time scale, everyone's going to have that button. Again, long enough time scale, that's where we're headed. So going back to the physicist for a second, one of our favorites, Enrico Fermi, is well known for the Fermi paradox. And the Fermi paradox is, well, if the universe is so large and it's so old, how come we haven't encountered any other intelligent life yet? And for a little while, we had this very parochial point of view, which seemed like an offshoot of the hypothesis that the Earth was the center of the universe before Tycho Brahe and Johannes Kepler disabused us of that. People used to have this notion, well, the Earth is unique. The Earth is special. There's only one planet with water and with life. But now we've found thousands, tens of thousands of planets as we launch bigger and bigger telescopes that are capable of bearing life. So the universe is littered with them. And we've only been around as a civilization for five, 7,000 years. We've only been around as a species for a few hundred thousand years. We've only been around as life on this planet for a few billion years. Where is everybody? I actually think the most likely plausible explanation is the great filter hypothesis. And the great filter hypothesis is that any sufficiently advanced civilization blows itself up. When people started first wrestling with that possibility back probably in the 50s when the Drake equation was first created that asked how many advanced civilizations might be out there, they were thinking in terms of nuclear danger. But today we're seeing other technologies that are on the intermediate or even near-term horizon that could also potentially have an annihilating impact. 
Yeah, before we even get to our favorite topic, sin bio, which is, yes. I think, where much of the near-term danger comes from. On the great filter hypothesis, there's another one that was recently popularized by, I believe, Shishin Liu. Apologies if I get his name wrong, but famous sci-fi author. He wrote The Three-Body Problem. He has a hypothesis called the dark forest hypothesis, where the universe is like a dangerous dark forest that we're all tiptoeing through. And whoever makes a noise identifies themselves to the other predators in the forest who immediately kill it because we all have killing power and first strikes are so powerful in a technologically advanced society that whoever finds the other one first, instead of saying hello, they just wipe you out just in case. It's the exact opposite of the prime directive from Star Trek. (laughs) (laughs) The problem with the dark forest hypothesis is that any species that is capable of destroying another species immediately on contact was first capable of destroying itself. So how did it make it through that whole situation, through that great filter? And the only solution I can come up with is not a great one, but it's the Borg solution, which is you all become one thing. I don't try to kill myself. You don't try to kill yourself. Even though individual cells may go rogue, they don't have the ability to shut your whole body down because we've decided the unit is one thing and has a central intelligence and central command. It was the presumption that Borg-like intelligences would, in an abundance of caution, annihilate any species that they came across. On that one, I'm a little optimistic because I think to become a Borg-like civilization, you would have to have become pacifist first. Yeah, in order to survive to that That's level right. of you development. That's right. You would care more about the collective. Yeah. Well, you had mentioned SynBio. To me, the powerful example is the Human Genome Project, which is really technically a step before synthetic biology. It's about reading DNA matter rather than altering it. But there's something there's sometimes referred to as the Carlson curve, which is the curve that traces how rapidly the price and performance improves in the realm of genomic sequencing and synthetic biology in general. And it makes the Moore's Law curve of computing look pokey. And so the statistic is the Human Genome Project ended in 2003. It took 13 years. It cost about $3 billion. It involved thousands of the top scientists throughout the world. And its result was a single haploid genome. And today, substantially more work can be achieved for about $1,000, so one three millionth the cost of the Human Genome Project, by a lone lab tech, which might very well be an undergrad or even a high school kid, working with the proper equipment in the span of about a day or maybe two days. So that's the rate of improvement that we have. And in contemplating what might become possible with synthetic biology, particularly viewing it through this grim lens that we're looking at things through right now, Try to imagine the field of synthetic biology today, everything that it's doing that's amazing with CRISPR and with other technologies. Imagine the total output of that field over the coming 15 years. Who knows what it'll be, but we can imagine it'll be profound. And then imagine that unit of work, that which the entire field achieves in 15 years, eventually becoming an easy day's work for a lone undergraduate. Would that be a more or less stable world than a world of thousands of sovereign nuclear powers. Because if we had gotten as good and efficient with nukes after the Manhattan Project, you would have had nuclear weapons in thousands of garages and college laboratories by the mid-1960s, right? Synthetic biology will be the first one to deliver world-ending capability to individuals. It'll come before nanotechnology. Yeah, nanotech is still way off. And other technologies that sometimes people cite as potentially having very asymmetric powers in the future include geoengineering. There's always a possibility for a black swan. By definition, they're unpredictable. But just the clear current progress rate of synthetic bio may have already gotten us there. 
You had this horrific example you gave about how they modified one of the flu viruses. Yeah, and this was in the ancient year of 2011. So this is the kind of thing that not only could be done, but has been done, and has been done with tools that are, by today's standards, relatively primitive. So back in 2011, researchers in Holland and Wisconsin were working with something called H5N1 flu. Now, H5N1 flu is literally 3,000 times more lethal than swine flu. And swine flu is very rightly feared. But H5N1 kills 60% of the people that it infects, whereas swine flu kills 0.02% of the people it infects. So 3,000 times more lethal. The one thing we can like about H5N1 flu, it is not very contagious at all. That's why there's only been, I believe, a few dozen deaths from H5N1 flu in the entire history of the world. What these researchers did is they created a highly contagious version of H5N1. And they kept it under lock and key, and they did it as part of a virology experiment. These weren't bad guys. But the journal Science, writing about this experiment, and Science is one of the two most revered publications in the world of scientific research, the other being Nature. The news arm of the journal Science wrote, this strain could, quote, change world history if it were set free by triggering a pandemic of, again, quote, quite possibly with many millions of deaths. And at the same time, there was a person whose title was the U.S. National Science Advisory Board Chairman for Biosecurity. His name was Paul Keim. He said, I can't think of another pathogenic organism that is as scary as this one. I don't think anthrax is scary at all compared to this. And this guy was an anthrax expert. So that happened back in 2011. Now, there's an optimistic way of viewing this, which is that this was a very carefully sequestered critter. It was probably deep in some biosafety vault on both sides of the Atlantic. And there was no way it was going to teleport into your Caesar salad tomorrow. Another way of looking at it is they created basically very tiny data files. The whole flu genome is about 15,000 letters. That's very, very small. And the number of modifications that went into this particular mod, I don't know. But my guess is they could probably fit on a post-it note. And anybody who gets their hands on that tiny list of changes, whether it's in 2011, today, or 30 years in the future, would have a trivially easy time reanimating that particularly contagious strain of H5N1. Now, 2011 was before CRISPR was invented. CRISPR is an editing technology which has radically enabled and radically eased the process of editing a genome. And it is diffused to the point where CRISPR is widely practiced in high-end high school biology labs. And I'd say that's a good thing. I think synthetic biology has an enormous amount of promise for humans, and it should be taught to young folks, etc. But there is this terrible danger that as this proliferates, there will be more and more turbocharged pathogens generated. What we've basically done is with synthetic biology, we've taken designing and hacking humans from the physical domain to the digital domain. It's a similar problem that people keep creating new computer viruses, but unlike computers, when a human crashes, it's fatal. There's no reboot. And I think it's safe to guess that a desktop DNA synthesizer from the year 2038 will be capable of things that the entire project of synthetic biology is incapable of today. And there's a writer named Richard Preston who wrote a book that some people probably know called The Hot Zone. He's written fiction that's based on bioterror and bioerror. He's written science fact that's based on bioterror and bioerror. And the quote of his that resonates with me is this. The main thing that stands between the human species and the creation of a supervirus is a sense of responsibility among the individual biologists. And the danger is that we'll become vulnerable to the ethics 
of ever larger groups of people. We were vulnerable to the ethics of two people in 2011. They were good guys. They were actually virologists. Today, there's probably hundreds of people who, enabled by CRISPR, could do the things that were done in 2011. And at some point, that's going to extend to the world's elite life science grad students. And at some point, it's going to extend beyond them. It seems like this is one of those fears that is almost built into the human species. We all realize that this at some level. Everyone watches zombie movies. Why? It's basically warning you what to do when the plague comes. Now, when the real plague comes, unfortunately, I don't think people will look gray and green and be lumbering around slowly. They'll be your loved ones coughing and feeling sick very quickly. Or if it's an engineered virus, it could be something that shows no symptoms until everybody drops dead 10 days later. So we do have some sense of alarm already built into our science fiction genres. I would argue that science fiction and movies actually warn people. Peter Thiel famously critiqued sci-fi because he said there's no more optimistic sci-fi. In the 50s and 60s, we had all this optimistic sci-fi. Star Trek was very positive and optimistic. But nowadays, it's all apocalyptic and negative. And I think that's because a lot of filmmakers rightly recognize that we are approaching a singularity, but a singularity of a different kind, where a single individual can end everything. Yeah, and particularly when we start talking about synthetic biology, I worry more about the lone nihilist than the organized terror groups. Because with relatively few exceptions, and really the only exception I've been able to identify was called Am Shinriku. They famously attacked the Tokyo subway with sarin gas back in the 90s. But generally speaking, terror groups are discriminate by nature. And the kind of attack that you would carry out with synthetic biology or perhaps with nanotechnology, some other things, are indiscriminate by nature. So I do worry more about the lone nihilist. I'll give you a worse scenario. I don't think it requires a lone nihilist. I think you can actually easily assemble a group of nihilists. Once again, you've said, pessimistic (laughs) as you are, Rob, you're being too optimistic here. So tell me how you assemble. I'm not trying to be a pessimist. I don't want to to create World War III or... The reason we're having this conversation is I don't think you're a pessimist. I actually think you're a realist. Yeah, I'm a big believer in human freedoms, and I'm not convinced that we need to start forbidding things. Quite the opposite, as we'll discuss. Right. But I think it's quite easy to organize a group to work on this. There are multiple groups in history that have been wiped out, that have been eradicated, genocided. And very often, groups of people have essentially all committed mass suicide because they knew they were going to die. So there's a famous one with some Jews who were surrounded by the Romans, and rather than let themselves be enslaved by the Romans, they killed their own families, drew straws, and then killed themselves. When India was being invaded by Islam, castles that were under siege, when they were falling, everybody inside would kill themselves. Now, the worst scenario, again, popular movies and literature so far ahead of us, is the Dr. Strangelove scenario. Dr. Strangelove, the movie, came out after the nuclear weapons were created in World War II. And the fear was that the U.S. and the Soviet Union had created doomsday devices. Doomsday devices basically said, don't try and kill me, because if you kill me, this automatically goes off and kills everybody. The problem is that doomsday devices will not stop at the nation-state level. They'll populate to the group level. So if you are in a subgroup, a minority, that is being eliminated and eradicated, what you may do is create a doomsday device. And you say, if we get taken out, everybody gets taken out. And this is where you can get a group of intelligent people together to work on the problem. That's really interesting. So you can have a proliferation of multiple doomsday devices. Using the Masada example, which is the one from Jewish history, you could hypothetically say, well, if the state of Israel was about to get annihilated... Exactly. If they, they, had, they might yeah. unveil a doomsday device. They might say, oh, by right. the way, we got one of these. And then it turns out so do the North Koreans, and so do the Kurds, and so does ISIS, and so on and so forth. And so do smaller and smaller groups. I mean, it might be the Rohingya in Burma, in Myanmar, who decide to create such a thing. So and, if you can yeah. get sufficient group loyalty, it's very easy to create a suicide cult. 
even the anti-natalists, they're extreme environmentalists who might go in on this because they're like, well, humans are kind of the plague that's infesting the earth and let's get rid of humans and it goes back to paradise. Yeah. And again, movies warn about this. If you remember 12 Monkeys, Terry Gilliam's famous thriller about a sin bio attack or uh, 28 Days Later, the zombie movie. And one reason why my delusion that it would really be nihilist individuals that we needed to be concerned about was soothing to me is because groups are, of course, far more dangerous than individuals because they can pool skills and they can be in more places than one at once. They can do it with current or close to current technology. Yeah. And when I think about the lone nihilist, I worry about people like the person who shot up that theater in Aurora, Colorado. It was a Batman premiere, the guy who famously dressed as a Joker. He was an elite life sciences PhD student. So he was in that relatively narrow circle of people that we would have to worry about because as time passes and a group of people grows, the odds of somebody from that group doing something terrible and bizarre and completely off the rails goes somewhere from being slim to being somewhere like high to being somewhere like near certainty. Okay, so we've posed this terrible instability that we believe to varying degrees lies in the intermediate future. You're probably more pessimistic than I am. I believe there are things that we can do to preclude Solutions, this. yeah. Yeah. I have a set of potential solutions, but it's just not the world I want to live in. <laughs> so I'm in denial in that sense. I don't want the extreme ones. And so here's what I think we need to do. You talked about Dr. Strangelove. I think that's a very powerful example. We did survive the Cold War. And I think part of the reason for that was we got very good at telling ourselves ghost stories. We got very good at freaking out in a way that turned out to be very, very productive. That is a great point. I mean, the first thing I worried about even doing this podcast is, should we be sounding an alarm? Do we want to be alarmist? And the problem is, if you stick your head in the sand, it's not going away. As you said, this is on the Carlson curve. The Carlson curve, yes. Which is much steeper than Moore's law curve. Much so steeper. This is not even like AGI, where it's theoretical. It's sort of inevitable. It's coming. So at this point... You know, one way out of this is to create such an allergic and immune response in every human that when they get the idea that someone is capable of something like this, that it just creates an immune response for the whole species, right? Where essentially every cell in the body becomes a white blood cell. And that may buy us quite a bit of time. I have young kids. I want people to be aware. I want people to be on their guard for it rather than having some horribly catastrophic thing that happens that's sort of a near miss which wakes us up. Because the crackdown in the wake of that could be far worse. We lost 3,000 people on 9-11 and we're still paying for it today in terms of lost freedoms and all these extra wars that we ended up fighting. Better to be informed and prepared. You've just said two things that make me think of immune systems. First of all, you had said all of us could be white blood cells to counteract this kind of attack. And I really love that analogy because, first of all, obviously, none of us would survive even a day without our immune systems. And our immune systems, I mean, they get trained up when they get exposed to new viruses. And training the societal immune system to start having some awareness and some concern about these scenarios now is maybe as akin to giving a vaccine of some sort. Yeah, it's a very interesting problem. And immune systems have to be trained very, very carefully. And then the other thing is what you just said about 9-11. That's the immune system overreacting. If you die of a sepsis infection, it's usually because your immune system overreacted to an extent that it started causing damage to your organs. On a more narrow level, there's something called a cytokine response storm. That's something that happens sometimes in immunotherapy. Cytokines are things that signal the immune system to make more and more white blood cells. And sometimes you get into a situation where there are so many of these signals going out to make more and more white blood cells 
that the body essentially creates a crippling number of white blood cells and then kills itself. And so the 9-11 example you just cited is an extreme case of that. Like we didn't nip the initial infection in the bud. And then we had this radical sepsis-like overreaction of spending trillions of dollars and killing a lot more than 3,000 people. And the Patriot Act, what it did to our freedoms, which are still gone to this day. And we just live now in a surveillance state, which is now all forgiven because of 9-11. In fact, when 9-11 happened that day at work, I said to one of my coworkers, I said, oh, there's going to be a war over this. I didn't know who, I didn't know where. And I was wrong. There were two. In a drone strike on a commercial aviation scenario, you could easily imagine that the overreaction that we have afterwards may be worse than the actual initial problem. And so that's why you have to follow this very, very careful and narrow balance between training the immune system to recognize a new threat, which is really all what we're talking about today. A lone wolf or a small organization doing terrible things with new technologies. But the reason that you really have to train that immune system is if even a failed attack gets through, the overreaction could be what really, really cripples us. If you consider the worst possible symbio attack to be something that is eradicating of all of us, right? Something that could be a trivial failure on that scale, it kills 1% of us, could just cripple society. It's very hard to do these counterfactuals. For example, 9-11... The response to that may be an overreaction, but in a parallel universe, it could have turned out if we hadn't had that reaction, then they would have gotten their hands on a nuclear weapon. Yeah. It's impossible to say. So the immune system is going to react the way it's going to react. But I agree with you in that training it is very important. We don't want everyone to be big brother, every neighbor spying on everyone and constantly surveilling and reporting on everyone. That's a nightmare scenario. But at the same time, these new categories of technologies just enable a new category of threats that the immune system has to be trained to recognize and then respond to. So what are the things that we can do? I like your idea of ghost stories. Yeah. For example, Ex Machina, if you remember that movie. Brilliant movie. Brilliant movie. It's about an AGI threat. We have the zombie movies. It's been a while since I've seen a good sin bio threat movie. It has been a while. So to just go briefly back to the Cold War example, we did tell ourselves these terrible ghost stories with names like War Games and Dr. Strangelove and Failsafe and On the Beach. And as a result of that, Everybody knew what the worst case stakes were. There was a time shortly after World War II when both the Soviet Union and the U.S. believed that a nuclear war was winnable. Yes, exactly. And we cured ourselves by that by talking about it and fearing it and working very, very hard on contingency plans. And it took scenarios like nuclear winters to show that even a small number of nuclear weapons being detonated in the atmosphere could end all life on Earth. When it comes to plague stuff, we've lost track. Like, plagues in human history used to be far, far, far worse. There was a plague in 536, they've now discovered, AD, between a third and a half of the people in the Eastern Roman Empire, the Byzantine Roman Empire, were believed to have died from plague. Think of a half or a third of all the people you know dying of plague. Yeah, and what's chilling about that is just thinking about how less resilient society is today. I mean, if you could imagine some kind of a symbiote or other attack grievously sickening, let's say, 1% of the population, most cities don't even have a fifth that much hospital bed capacity. Whereas in the Middle Ages, people were tough enough to shake off the deaths of 5, 10, 20, 30% of their neighbors. I don't know what happens in an American urban area when 80% of the people who are stampeding a hospital, life-threatening situations are turned away for lack of beds. 
one analogy is World War II. World War II was highly devastating for communities that were fairly built up from a civilizational perspective, not as much as we are today. And they seemed to toughen up when they needed to because there is no other option. But we are now much more densely packed in urban areas. We have much more complex supply chains for even basic necessities like food and water and power. So if we were out of food and water and power, for example, in Manhattan, it would be a complete disaster, much more so than it would have been in the Manhattan of 100 years ago. Yeah, and it seems like we have these single service dependencies, for lack of a better word, today. If the power goes out, completely out, that shuts down pretty much everything. The food starts spoiling. The cops can't communicate with one another. There's no way to navigate after dark. All exits from a city are going to be blocked. Yeah, we've used civilization to put humans in more precarious locations than they would have been otherwise. Whether it's living on the floodplain or living in the desert or living behind bridges, behind single roads or air delivery, there's just a lot more humans who could be stranded. Yeah, and also I'm thinking about what it would be like to be invaded in 1939. I would imagine even in Northern Europe, there were very, very large sections of cities that were unelectrified, or at least people that were living without electricity, probably had fairly recent memories of being without it. People were just much closer to living more directly off of the earth and more directly by their hands and the sweat of their labor than we are today. But biological attack that fell radically short of the worst case scenario could just be so devastating because of the knock-on effect. Well, biological attacks create a level of fear that it is ongoing that other kinds of problems don't. So for example, if there is a earthquake, after the earthquake has passed, everybody comes out to help everybody else. But if there's a plague or a biological attack, everyone goes into hiding and nobody wants to help anybody else because they get sick too. Which brings us to this amazing term you came up with when we were exchanging emails about my series of essays on these topics and later tweeted, and it resonated with a lot of people, which was the ender. Yeah, I believe that if you want to get a message out, you sort of have to brand it and you have to put it in terms that people can easily synthesize, understand immediately and transmit. Like you said, the Terminator scenario, the Skynet scenario for AI, everybody knows what that is. So it's very easy to communicate. And to me, the idea of an individual trying to kill everyone on Earth, this person is an ender. And I'm riffing a little bit off of that book, Ender's Game. It doesn't quite mean the same thing. I thought it was a brilliant term when you came up with that. I'd been thinking about these topics, I won't say nonstop, but an awful lot for a couple of months because I was writing those four long essays for Medium that wrestled with it. And I'd sent you the first draft of the first one or something like that. And we started lobbing emails back and forth. And you came up with this really, really powerful term because it is so succinct. It has an echo of something that we're familiar with. But we've just spent most of the last hour defining the ender. And so it is a complicated topic that could benefit a great deal from traveling with just a couple of words and a few syllables. Another analogy I think I've mentioned to you before is this phrase, the tipping point. It's a powerful phrase. Probably most educated people understand what it means and have used it. And the fact is that term has a birth date. It was coined by Malcolm Gladwell in an essay in The New Yorker probably 20-something years ago, and he defined what a tipping point was. He came up with the term, and it's a great little essay, later titled a book after it. I'd be surprised if more than 1% of the people who successfully use that term actually read the essay. It's a complicated term, and it conveys a great deal. And so I could now say, hey, you know, the tipping point in this market or in this political situation or whatever it was came at such and such a time when such and such happened. And now all of a sudden, thousands of words of defining something has been collapsed into something very concise. 
more sophisticated conversations can be held. The trouble is, does it become aspirational? Like, is the term too good? Right. We don't want it to become aspirational. It's not something I want to see exist, and nor do I want to turn it into some sort of biblical prophecy where then people are looking forward to the ender, because there's always some psychopaths out there who are. But I think it's important for us to recognize that these kinds of people exist. I wouldn't lionize it. It's not a positive thing, right? This is obviously a terrible, unloved, unlovable person. To the extent that if they succeed, obviously no one's around to you applaud, know, them. applaud them. Yes. And if they fail, they'll be the most hated, reviled person in history. So they're not doing themselves or their progeny or their friends or family or even their ideologies any favors because they're forever going to be associated with a horrible thing. And let's face it, most of them are going to be inept. <laughs> it's one more chance to fail. So I think every time any one of them fails, the ideal would be to not give them any attention. But as we've shown through terrorism, we don't really do that. We give it a lot of attention. But I think the way to look upon this character is like a Gollum-type character from Lord of the Rings, this pathetic, evil, bumbling, inept character that no one should aspire to be. But at the same time, it is important to get the message out. We need terminology and vocabulary to be able to communicate. We need to be able to transmit the information, to absorb it, and to keep an eye out for it. And if someone says, hey, I think so-and-so wants to be an ender, that gets the point across to how we should investigate that person. Gollum is actually a really, really good example. I hadn't thought of that one. Nobody wants to be Gollum when kids go around playing the Hobbit. Yeah, I mean, a real ender is likely to be a Gollum-type character. Someone who is warped and distorted, unhappy and miserable. Another term might be for the failed ender. I was thinking last night, enderlings. Like an <laughs> enderling is somebody who tries and fails. And most people are going to fail spectacularly in this objective. Some combination of credible attack by an ender. Enderling. Thank you, enderling. <laughs> combined with the Sadakin response could take out a lot of humanity and civil society as we know it. Which is why we need to marshal our immune system against enderlings, because there's going to be thousands of them for every ender, and hopefully there'll be an infinite ratio, because I think if we think hard enough about it and early enough about it, there won't be an ender, but people have been attempting to kill as many people as possible in the act of dying for as long as we have records. This is going to be a little sappy, but my conclusion is that you're not going to be able to stop them purely through surveillance or creating totalitarian society or Big Brother watching because that creates its own immune response. And you're not going to be able to stop them by stopping technology for all the reasons we've already talked about. So really the only way is to not create them in the first place. Yeah. And to not create them means that we all just need to learn how to make sure nobody goes unloved. Actually, Naval, I don't think that's sappy at all. As anyone who saw my TED Talk will know, because I directly quote the bit about making sure no one goes unloved toward the end of my talk. Now, if you can't wait to hear part four of my conversation with Naval, you can binge that last half hour or so on my website, which is at after-on.com. Just listen to the second half of episode 45, which went up on March 21st. Also on my site, you can hear this really cool conversation that I had with Kevin Rose on a similar set of themes. In that case, as I mentioned yesterday, Kevin actually interviewed me for his own podcast, The Kevin Rose Show, which is an excellent show in general, and I strongly recommend it. And then yesterday, he and I both posted that interview to our respective podcast audiences to coincide with the release of my TED Talk. So thank you again profoundly for that, Kevin. If you enjoy any of this, I also encourage you to browse my podcast's archive of 50 episodes with various thinkers, founders, and scientists. In addition to synthetic biology, which does get a lot of coverage on my show, you'll find conversations with brilliant leaders in astrophysics, neuroscience, 
cryptocurrency, consciousness drones, augmented reality, and a whole lot more. And something I should have mentioned at the end of part two yesterday, when Naval and I talked so much about artificial intelligence, just a couple weeks ago, I had a really in-depth and fascinating conversation with Stuart Russell, who is one of the leading academics in the entire world of AI. He has concerns to put it mildly, about that particular existential risk, but he also has solutions. It's a really, really educating and inspiring conversation. And if you're interested in AI risk, mitigating AI risk, or even if you're dismissive of AI risk, I really do recommend it to you. Again, you can find that in my feed or at after-on.com. That's it for now. I hope you will join me here again tomorrow for the final installment of my conversation with Naval Ravikant. Mm-hmm.